Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. And as it turns out, Carrie Figder is also my guest today. Carrie works in philosophy of mind, philosophy of neuroscience, philosophy of science, and philosophy of language. These interests converge in her fabulous new book, which is titled Pieces of Mind, the Proper Domain of Psychological Predicates. The book has just been published with Oxford University Press. Now, I suppose that we're all familiar with cases where one attributes certain psychological states or capacities to creatures and systems that are not human persons. For example, your cat may prefer a certain variety of cat food, and maybe your houseplants enjoy a certain corner of the room that you've placed them in. In many cases, these attributions pass by without notice. However, in certain regimented scientific contexts, the attribution of psychological states and capacities to non-human things has become indispensable in our best models of their behavior. For example, complex explanatory accounts of fruit flies and certain plants invoke claims about them making decisions. And our best science has it that neurons anticipate certain stimuli. So what are we to make of these attributions? In Pieces of Mind, Carrie Figder defends a view that she calls literalism. Literalism is the view that in these scientific contexts, the attribution of psychological states and capacities to non-human and to subpersonal systems should be taken literally. Now, there's a lot to talk about, um, but let's begin as we normally do with our guest. Hello, Carrie. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Good to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. So, uh, you know the drill, I take it. Uh, why don't you start us off a bit by telling us about yourself? Okay. Um, and I, I should say that I will probably be doing my best uh, Scarlett Johansson imitation today because of a cold. Um, but, you know, setting that aside, I'm doing very well. Um, Good. So, you know, my background, uh, as I've found out doing these interviews, that, you know, a lot of people have very different sorts of backgrounds. It's not always the person who discovers philosophy in their freshman, you know, freshman year and then loves it and switches from physics to philosophy or something like that and then goes straight to grad school and so on and so forth. I, I actually did not take philosophy as an undergraduate. I think I was probably too intimidated. Um, but in any case, I was a, I was a poli-sci major with economics and history. Um, and I was very interested in international affairs, and I kind of did that. Um, and I ended up, you know, to make a long story short, I ended up being a journalist for a long time, uh, uh, both abroad, like in, in uh, mainly Caracas, Venezuela, um, but also a number of places in the in the U.S. in Seattle, and then in the um, in the um, headquarters of the Associated Press, who was my my main employer during those journalist years. Um, and then, but while I was at while I was working as a journalist, I, I sort of felt like I wanted to exercise my mind a bit more. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, journalism is a fantastic career and, and there was no need for me to leave, really. Um, and I could have 
you know, could have been quite happy there, but I just felt that I, you know, I always wanted to go to graduate school and get more education. And it was really just a question of what. And um, I had always wanted to be a writer. I always sort of been good at writing. Um, but I did, did not want to go into literature. That just kind of, you know, just th- that I'd love to read, but that didn't, didn't do, yeah, that didn't do it for me. And, and mm. eventually, you know, and it's, it's somewhat of a mystery, but not quite. Um, I did end up sort of realizing that philosophy, the sorts of questions that I was most interested in, even as an undergraduate, even uh, that I didn't, I didn't recognize them necessarily as philosophical questions, but I was interested in those. And then, you know, it's like, it was sort of an epiphany that, you know, what I really liked, what I was looking for was, was philosophy. And so, I, I was, you know, working in the New York headquarters of the AP, and I uh, applied to CUNY because, like any New Yorker, it's like, you know, how bad can it be if it's in New York, right? <laughs> um, and that, that was that was the extent of my research into graduate schools, and I applied, and I, you know, lo and behold, uh, you know, somehow I got in despite a, a, a totally crazy application essay. Um, and so, you know, I was off and running. I was, uh, you know, I, it took me a few years to kind of be a full-time uh, philosophy student, um, but I eventually did make the, the, the leap. And, you know, I've sort of been in it ever since, you know. Um, uh, you know, graduated like 10, 12, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And uh, now I'm at the University of Iowa. Well, that's fabulous. Um you know, uh, as as we both know, CUNY was a special place. Maybe it still is. But, uh, uh, I, I hope it still is. Um, uh, but uh, that was an exciting time to be a graduate student uh, at that institution. Um, and maybe it was an exciting time to be a graduate student in New York. Um, so, uh, great. Let's, uh, let's dive into the book. Does that sound okay? Yeah, sounds good. Good. So, um, as I mentioned in the the little uh, introductory um, uh, bit, um, so you've you've got these sort of diverse interests, um, and the book I think works. I, I guess as I'm reading, it works as at the intersection of the things that you're interested in. So um, the book is uh, working at the intersection of philosophy of mind, philosophy of language, philosophy of science, and neuroscience. And the way that the intersection sort of comes together is that you're concerned to explore um, the way in which. Um, uh, certain extensions of psychological concepts need to be revised or sort of common understanding of how those concepts work uh, needs to be revised in light of new developments or recent developments in, uh, broadly speaking, now the life sciences. Um, so that is to say the book covers a great deal of ground. It's a slim book, and um, but nonetheless, it's, it's jam-packed with, with, uh, with lots of good stuff. Um, so th- there's a lot going on. Um, maybe one place to begin then um, is where you, in fact, begin. Uh, that is by introducing and then tracing out throughout the book. It comes up multiple times. This sort of well-known, at least among certain kinds of philosophers, a well-known framework for thinking about uh, the ways concepts work and 
different kinds of concepts and how they're connected. Um, namely, um, this old sort of Wilfred Sellers uh, discussion uh, of the manifest and the scientific images. Um, could you spell out just in general terms just how that framework works in thinking through the the, the broader uh, 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 dimensions of, of the project? Sure, sure. So, um, I mean, as you sort of mentioned, I'm, you know, basically I'm, I'm defending the idea that psychology is going through a transition. Um, psychological concepts are going through a transition. So it's, it's conceptual change, which is a standard scientific, you know, philosophy science topic, conceptual change. Um, and that this change is driven by discoveries throughout the sciences. Um, and, one of the questions, of course, that, that you have to start out with, given that the topic here is, is conceptual change in psychology, is just the idea, well, you know, is, the, is there change going on at all? Because one of the main, you know, all of the kind of responses that I got while I was working on the book was, oh, you know, no, you know, just rejection of the idea that there was any change, you know, that you could actually use a term for a fruit fly or a group of neurons or a, you know, plants or any of these, you know, very odd cases um, that you could even, you know, that they, 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 of course they're metaphorical or of course it's, you know, somehow to be dismissed. And mm. so if you accept the idea that, that psychology is undergoing conceptual change, um, then you're accepting that um, these these new uses, you know, shouldn't just be dismissed like that. You have to actually give an account of of what is of what is going on. So so that's sort of what I'm what I'm trying to do in the book is to introduce the problem, and then uh, and then show that you know we need a we need an account of this, and then and then give an account. Um, and so the mat so sellers right so sellers. Is, um, uh, you know, I use sellers because, you know, again, the, the problem, it's not like there's a problem out there that people are talking about. Um, so at, at various points in the book, I try to take what I'm doing and, and relate it to things that are familiar to a wider audience, right? You know, kind of bring that, bring myself to where they are. And I think Seller's discussion of the manifest and the scientific images is a, is a familiar way to think about uh, the relationship between various ways of thinking about ourselves, about, about humans. So, yeah, so briefly in, in, I think it's philosophy and the scientific image of man, you know, he contrasts, um, he says there's this one image of ourselves, um, uh, which he calls uh, the manifest image, uh, which is the world of, of people and then things, where, um, where people are, exceptions, right? I mean, so human beings are exceptional in that, you know, person, as he puts it, person-appropriate concepts are, you know, they're appropriate for us, but they shouldn't be used for other things. Like, and he says, you know, in one example, he just says, you know, if you say that an earthworm has formed a habit, it's really just kind of poetic or something like that. He doesn't defend that. He just kind of says it like, isn't this obvious? Um, um, and this is, you know, contrasted in his, in his essay with the scientific image um, where, you know, a scientific image, you know, a theory involves positing certain theoretical terms. Um, and, uh, and so the idea is, you know, that 
you know, in, in theory, there's this conflict between the manifest image of ourselves, the way we think of ourselves and person appropriate concepts, and then the scientific image of man, uh, which I suppose in an extreme version, which I'm not attributing to sellers, but it just makes the idea clear, you know, we're just, we're, we're just material things and there's no reason to really talk about ourselves in, in these, you know, personal kinds of ways and in psychological ways, right? So you can just reduce it all to neural firing or whatever. Um, but it's that contrast and, you know, how do we, what he's worried about is, how, you know, are these things, you know, are, are they in necessary conflict or can they be somehow reconciled or something like that? Um, that that's not my, the reason I bring that up um, in the book is because um, what, what often gets forgotten in the discussion that Sellers gives is that prior to the manifest image, so the manifest image, you know, becomes the scientific image, you know, sort of when you, when you take away, when, when you take away those things from us, right, mm -hmm. you know, people um, cease to be describable or described in personal terms. Um, in the manifest image, uh, sorry, uh, the manifest image itself is a transition from what he calls the original image, right? So in the original image, um, all of the objects are persons, right. right? And, you know, not just the people. And, um, and the transition from the original image to the manifest image is one in which all the predicates, you know, the, the person appropriate predicates are pruned from everything, right? Leaving us with the manifest image where, you know, the people are the exceptions. Right. And so, you know, using that framework, uh, basically what I'm saying is that, you know, it looks like the transition to the scientific image is kind of going to look a bit more like the original image than one would ever anticipate. Um, but the terms, the so-called, you know, person appropriate or more generally just psychological, you know, mental uh, terms are going to be grounded in, uh, in scientific evidence. Right. Um, and so that's essentially what that, you know, that framework kind of provides people, I hope anyway, with an idea, a way of thinking that the transition I'm talking about is, it's a very tra similar transition conceptually to, you know, when we had terms like, I mean, common terms in, um, uh, in philosophy of language, you know, we talk about the reference of water or the reference mm -hmm. of gold. And uh, those terms, they were around for a long time. Um, and eventually they transitioned from, uh, you know, a, a non-scientifically grounded one, you know, based on superficial characteristics or whatever, to a scientifically grounded one where now for something to be gold, right, it's got to have, you know, the appropriate atomic number of, you know, atomic number 79, right? That's, that's what determines what real, real gold is that. Right. And then real water is H2O, right? And that's, that's what real water is. So if you have something that's not H2O, even if we thought it was water, it's not, right? Um, and we've accepted this. This is this is not an issue for, for us anymore, um, even if it was at some point. 
Um, and that's the sort of transition that I'm arguing is saying, you know, if you look at the sciences, um, this is what seems to be happening, right? At least that's the, you know, that's the position that I'm, that I'm defending. And when I say looking at the sciences, you know, I mean, pe many people are, you know, familiar with, with research, you know, cognitive ethology or comparative psychology, looking at, you know, chimps for a very long time, uh, you know, um, uh, more recently work with uh, corvids, you know, crows and blue jays and scrub jays and, and other sorts of ravens, other sorts of birds, you know, that, um, uh, but you also, so these, of course, there's been long, a lot of work done with rats mm -hmm. for a very long time. And so, even though there are still debates about what you can ascribe to animals, uh, you know, as opposed to just give a purely behavioristic explanation of their of of them, uh, at the in, at the same time, what you see is that the use of psychological terminology, you know, grounded in serious experimental work, right, is just it's it's like everywhere. Right. It's it's you know, it's not just the chimps and it's not just the, the birds who are now sudden suddenly they're smart. I mean, they were they always were. Right. right. Um, you know, but now it's also, you know, plants and, you know, bacteria and fruit flies. And, you know, so so the this whole broad usage um, really needs to really need to understand what what is going on in biology. Um and that's the you know that's what's driving the sort of the literalist view that I um, that I defend. Great. So one quick, just sort of quick follow up, and then I I, I want to make sure that um, uh, we 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 get to I uh, get to sort of start um, with a just a. a, a a summary statement of of literalism, um, but um, so b part of what is um, uh, one of the connections to the Salarzian uh, categories is um, uh, you've got this broader metaphysical view that you call anti exceptionalism. Uh -huh. Um, can you just so the idea is that the, the sort of uh, the, the 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 that the manifest image contains or is is, a, is the manifest image has as one of as its constitutive constitutive uh, uh, nature that there is something exceptional about human things, um, and that the scientific image is um, in some way um, a threat to that exceptionalism. Um, is that right? I, I mean, I, yeah, I think as a first pass, that's, that's right. Um, I mean, anti-exceptionalism is, is part of, of literalism. I see. Um, so, you know, maybe I should just explain it within. Yeah, let's within do that. that. Yeah. So yeah. can you just give us a first pass sort of, yeah. uh, we've, we've, we've sort of danced around literalism. So tell right. us all about that. So, so basically, literalism just says that these terms, you know, that are being used in serious scientific contexts, and that's that's a very important claim, you know, in, in the contexts. The, the, you know, I'm not talking about popular science. I'm not talking about one any what anybody might say at a party, right? I'm talking about the sorts of things that you see in the peer-reviewed literature, papers that have won scientists. 
Nobel Prizes, right? We're, t- we're talking serious scientific contexts. And these are the contexts in which scientists are stating facts, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're reporting what they found, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, so what literalism says is that these uses, right, in, from, these, from these contexts um, should be understood literally right i mean they're not so there's a that's not metaphorical or colorful language or something it's literal in the sense it's it's fact stating discourse right it's not factually defective as some people might say um and it has the same reference right and the reason why i have that extra the bit of specifying same reference is that you could agree and in fact one of the you know, alternatives is that, well, sure, they're using them literally, but they're using them to refer to something else. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the anti-exceptionalist part of that is the metaphysical, you know, that's the sort of metaphysical plank, you might say, um, in which, which grounds this claim of same reference. Right. Okay. So we're not, you know, it's not like, so I'm, I'm assuming here some sort of, uh, intentional realism or mental state realism where what we're picking out with psychological uh, predicates in these contexts, you know, it's important to specify that, sure. what we're picking out are um, states that in some sense are, you know, if you're a naturalist, they're in some sense dependent on, you know, the brain or the body or some sort of material stuff. So I'm not, you know, it's not it's not a dualist view in that way either. Um, but I mean, some of these commitments that I have are, are not in, they're not actually essential to literalism, but they're, mm-hmm. but certainly a realist version of, of a realist and naturalist version of literal, literal literalism, you know, would have these additional commitments. But the basic idea is just that when a, um, a scientist doing, experiment with say fruit flies and says that they make these decisions and in these contexts they their decision making is is hampered in some way they're using the term you know made a decision uh just as you might if you're doing a psychological experiment with with monkeys making a decision right which we do all the time you know capuchin monkeys decide which way are the dots moving Right. Um, or people. Right. People making decisions. So it's it's the same. The term making a decision or the or decision making or that sort of, you know, whatever it is, you, however you want to, you know, exactly specify the verb um, is in all those different contexts is being used literally. Right. As fixating um, with the same reference. Right. So, so oh, let me let me just add one other yeah. one other thing that may v- really clarify it. Good, good, good. Um, so uh, we we talk about uh, vision, right? And when we use the t- terms for vision, you know, a dog sees this, or a mantis shrimp sees that, or an eagle sees such and such, or a human being sees su- such and such, right? So we're using the term see, right, uh, in all those contexts, and I'm. We're using it in a literal way with the capital L. We're saying the eagle and the human and the monkey, right, and the fruit fly, they all, they all really see. Um, and 
what it is to see is the same thing, right? We're, we're, we're referring to the same capacity across these species. That is not uh, disputed. I mean, that's, that's not an issue. People don't think that, you know, vision is something that is exclusive to humans and so on with the rest of our, you know, sort of sensory uh, apparatus and sensory capacities. We totally accept what is essentially a literalist view for sensory capacities. And what I'm saying is the, what, the, the way we talk about, the way we think about, the way we ascribe, you know, visual capacities to different species, that's just being expanded to include all of, you know, psychological um, vocabulary. I see. So, um, uh, and I guess it's also uh, an important sort of uh, adjunct to that point that, um, especially in the case of um, talking about what an eagle sees or what a dog hears, um, we're perfectly comfortable with the thought that the capacity of vision and uh, hearing that is being attributed to the eagle and the dog, respectively, in fact, are far more acute. <laughs> right yes. than they are in the human case, so that we're, we're perfectly comfortable. You say in the book with attributing in these sort of more directly, sort of strictly sensory contexts, um, the idea that not only does the eagle see, but the eagle's power of vision far outstrips the human capacity for vision. So that eagles are, in fact, from a certain perspective, sort of, um, you know, more paradigmatically seeing in a certain <laughs> sense, right? Well, I, I don't know if I'd say more paradigmatically. I would just say, you know, there are capacities of seeing and, you know, the eagles beat us blind, so to speak. I mean, they're, they're just way better than we are. And the dogs are way better than right. we are, you know, smelling and, and nobody's nose gets out of joint. Right. Um, and it's interesting, the difference when, we do, when you talk about decisions or, you know, having preferences or, you know, working memory or, you know, learning or, you know, a lot of different things, you know, specific things. You know, people are just, the, there's a real sense of, no, we're better. We're, and, and, and we're not, not just that we are better at these things, but that what, what we possess is the real thing. Right. And what they possess, uh, either they don't possess it at all or, or it's somehow, you know, it's got to be inferior in some way. Right. Or a counterfeit or yeah. the apparent or right. scare quotes right. deciding. Yeah. Got it. Um, good. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about how you build the, the, the case then. So um, as, as you've, you, you've mentioned – um, it's really important for the literalist view that we keep in mind that we're we that the literalist wants to give a literalist interpretation of psychological attributions in these very particular kinds of regimented, serious scientific contexts. Um, and so you identify these sort of um, two kinds of of analogy cases that you think help to um, uh, give us some insight into why psychological predicates are attributed to non-persons and, and when they are and what are the contexts, scientifically speaking, when when uh, this kind of attribution shows up. Um, okay. Can you talk a little bit about the qualitative and quantitative analogy stuff? 
Sure, sure. Um, because this is, you know, it's the, the there's a difference here, not just in how these things are being used now, but also the evidence. Right. And I think it's a very important, just different way, you know, different tools and methods that we have available now for grounding these claims. Right. So, you know, people are familiar with, I think, just general sorts of analogies between, you know, different, say, parts of the uh, you know, the human brain and parts of the rat brain, for example. I mean, those sorts of um, anatomical uh, analogies can be drawn, uh, you know, based on, say, a common ancestor or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and then there's more, you know, analogies of behavior when the dog is, you know, again, not a scientific context, but in, in a very ordinary context, you know, the dog is... Uh, you know, sitting by the door and he's wagging his tail and he's, you know, whining and everything. And, you know, there's, so there's a similarity of behavior there where we recognize that the, the dog wants to, wants to go out. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, those sorts of analogies, I mean, there are more scientific versions, you know, people who think that, you know, the leaves of a tree or, or any sort of leaf has a certain structure to it. And the structures in there are, uh, are processing light um, in ways that are similar to ways that eyes process light. And so some people would draw an analogy between the structure of the leaf and certain structures in the eye, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this sort of analogy is, is used throughout science and it's, there's you know, no problem with it. But the really interesting, you know, what, where, where these sorts of, uh, this sort of evidence, which, you know, I mean, it's, it's always part of the, part of the, um, the, the, the whole bunch of evidence that can be given, right? It's not like you have one particular type. Um, they don't, in, in my view, they don't, um, be, because in a sense, I mean, people often say, you know, similarity is sort of, you know, anything, two things are similar and, you know, there's there's a sense in which when we're drawing an analogy between two things, um, it it it's not it it can be too sort of dependent on our own uh, our own perspective, mm. as as particularly when it comes to psychological predicates, right? Um, we think of ourselves, and and then we think about how these other things are similar to us, right? And you. you People doing animal cognition are, are getting away from this. They're trying to think about things from the perspective of the animal and what they do, what type of animal they are. You know, a dog, you know, is an olfactory species and we are a visual species. So doing tests of a dog that require it to do something with its vision are probably not going to, you know, the dog's not going to do so well, mm. right? Um but in any case, those are all what I call qualitative analogies. Um, the, the, really inter- the really interesting stuff, uh, and this is just, just beginning, really, um, but a lot of people are, you know, in the relevant sciences are saying, you know, we, 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 this, this is kind of the wave of the future, um, is, is the use of what I call quantitative analogy. And that's where you have a model of a psychological capacity or process and it's not just a what's sometimes called a phenomenological model where it's basically just you know relating a stimulus to a response or something like that there's actually cognitive 
you know, our psychological capacities that are posited, you know, the, the theoretical terms, right, that are posited um, to explain the relationship between mm-hmm. stimulus and response. And so we have a model, for example, of this type uh, for, you know, certain forms of decision making, right? And what's interesting about modeling, I, you know, I, I'm not going to go into this in great detail because that would just be a whole right. conversation of itself. Uh, but the idea is that you have a math, you have a math, mathematical model of this sort. Um, and it's just par for the course for scientists to take a model and then use it in a different domain. Right. So this is, you know, this is just standard stuff, right? Uh, you have, just a, another example, the Latka-Volterra um, equations, you know, relating populations of fish, you know, predators and prey in the Adriatic was almost immediately, you know, very shortly after extended to, you know, wolves and, mo- and moose mm. or foxes and rabbits, you know, but then it was also extended to like wound healing, angiogenesis, you know, mm. grow- growth of capillary tips, and it was extended to economics, right, to the relationship between wages and jobs. Um, and in all these sorts of extensions, it kind of comes up, well, you know, is this a predator-prey model? You know, right. what, 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 is a, what is a predator now? What is, a pre- what is prey? So what's happening with these psychological models is that in the case of, say, decision-making, you've got various processes that are posited, uh, you know, as being, you know, the, this is the decision, this is the accumulation of evidence, right? Uh, this is the point at which the decision is made, you know, and then the, the subject uh, makes a response and you know what the decision is. You have behavioral evidence of that. And these models are developed on the basis of, you know, undergraduates, your, your typical subject mm-hmm. pool uh, or other humans. But they then they then scientists will use them for capuchin monkeys, right? Uh, and then they will use them for you know, fruit flies, right? So you're using the same model for in domains that were, that are very different from the original, right? But the idea is that it's, it's kind of not up to us what we think is going to be similar or not. What may be up to you is where you're going to try the model. Right. Right. But it's, it's not a given that fruit flies are going to be similar to us in this very important structural way. Uh, just because you try out this particular decision-making model using fruit flies, right? That's that's not given. And so if you just look at the behavior and you try to say, well, what are these fruit flies doing? Do they look like us? Well, that would be a qualitative analogy type of thing. Uh, but when you have a model, uh, it's it's it provides some sort of objective criterion for when something is making a decision and when it really isn't. And it's very similar. I, I like to use this example. It's very similar to the way you have the equations of angular momentum. And those equations, uh, they capture the motion of a ballerina, a planet, a, uh, um, a nucle- nu- uh, atomic nuclei, you know, if they rotate. Um, all of those things rotate. 
right? right? Now, we all understand what rotating is, right? But, you know, we have a scientific definition that says, you know, strictly speaking, rotating is, you know, satisfying these equations. And no, it's not like the ballerinas are the real rotators right. and the other things are not, right? They're all real rotators and they just all do it in their own kind of in their own way in the one that's appropriate to their to their bodies and their situation you know body their material body right right. um and so it's the same sort of a thing where uh you have a model a mathematical model you apply to different domains and if it fits then that gives you a very good reason uh you know objective reason to say hey guess what you know the fruit flies uh are not just making decisions Right. But they're exhibiting very similar sorts of flaws in their decision making that we do. Right. So can I one question about this? So, yeah, when you say, give you know, it, that the fruit flies um, behavior fits the model that we have um, for decision making in, in the let's say the, the, the context of human persons. Now, you say oh. that gives us very good reason Mm-hmm. to say that the fruit fries are are deciding. Um, do you mean that that gives us conclusive evidence or something less than conclusive evidence? what what kind of what kind of support for the literalist uh, uh, um, uh, view of uh, the attribution of decision making proper capacities to fruit flies does the does the fact that they satisfy the model give us? Um, I don't. I don't think it would be conclusive. Uh, you know, that's a real, that's that's a very high sure. bar <laughs> for 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 most scientific research. Uh, so I, I I'm not sure that's even an appropriate sort of a criterion. Right. Um, you know, nothing is almost nothing is conclusive. You know, they're just you know the the that magical experiment which determines <laughs> the truth, right? That that is that's a you know by and large that's pretty mythological. Um, but what it does, it does it provides. I mean, here's 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 the way to sort of think about it is that we have a semantic division of labor, hmm. right? That's that semantic division of labor. Um, is and our acceptance of that is part of is what underwrites our agreement that gold is the stuff that has the atomic number you know seventy nine or that water is the stuff that has you know two hydrogens and one oxygen in a particular configuration or that a harmonic oscillator is something that satisfies these equations and so forth so. When we talk about, when we use these terms, you know, again, in, in scientific contexts, uh, we have these criteria and the rest of us, right? So we develop these criteria for using them, right? Um, they make the, the ordinary term, you might put it, the folk term, right. uh, more precise, right? Boiling, we talk about boiling, but, you know, boiling is a, it's a, it's a particular point, and we recognize what that boiling point is, and it's kind of the, you know, the core of that particular uh, term is, you know, semantically speaking, is, you know, decided by science. Right? So, so for all natural stuff, we've kind of, the division of labor is science determines what the reference is for that. And then the rest of us, you know, sooner or later adopt that. Right. 
And, you know, so we defer to the scientists for the reference of these terms. Um, and in, so with psychological predicates, um, this is the sort of thing that I'm saying, the scientists are using it in these, using these terms, you know, specific terms in specific contexts with specific, you know, sorts of evidence, but in particular, they're using it with, with, uh, with models, right? Not just, right? Not just with models. There's other, you know, sorts of evidence as well. But the reason why I focus on the use of models is because it's much, much harder for people who want to push back, who don't want to accept the, the conceptual change to say, well, that's, you know, that's just a mere analogy. Oh, that's just, you know, um, uh, they're just playing with their words or something like that. I see. Right. It's 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 a lot harder when you when you have people developing these uh, these these mathematical structures and then using them, you know, developing on the basis of human behavior and then extending them to non-humans. Right. You you can't just say, oh, they mean it differently, because then it's like, well, wait a minute. They just took this model off the shelf. Right. It was it was a human model, but it wasn't. It, it's not a humans only model, right, right? Right. So if it's a model of decision making, and it fits the fruit flies, right? Um, then prima facie, you know, that's gr- good, really good evidence that they are making decisions, especially when you start manipulating the variables or the parameters of the of the model, and they have very similar sorts of you know responses. Right. Um, so good. Uh, can we talk a little bit about um, so one kind of um, again a it's 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 not the it's it, it's not a central argument for literalism, but I I found that your 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 working through it was helpful to get clearer on some of the uh, the the more finer the, the finer points of literalism. So the, mm-hmm. the 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 way that you sort of explicate, let's say. The literalist view by looking at what you think is a is a close cousin or maybe even stronger an analogy, um, the sort of inference to the best explanation arguments in the case of other minds. Right. Can you tell right. us a little bit about how that works? Right. And I, I should say, I mean, that argument works as well, but my essential argument really is is not an argument from analogy or an IBE. It's it's this what you might call. I mean, I didn't didn't call that in the book, but it might just be, you know, a sort of an argument from, uh, from the semantic division of labor. Right. Right. You know, I mean, what, why do why do we think that that water is H two O? Well, because that's what we we kind of we kind of gave that task over to the scientists. And, um, and we just, we sort of adopt what, what they have decided on the basis of evidence that they find convincing. Right. Right. And that's, that's essentially, you know, what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, but it's, it's for, for people again, who, who resist this idea that there is actual conceptual change going on, that you can eat, that it's even possible for psychological concepts to change and to become, uh, as I put it, you know, non-anthropocentric. Right. right. I mean, we have non-anthropocentric vision, right? Why not non-anthropocentric decision making, mm-hmm. right? Etc. Right. Um, so the inference of the best explanation 
you know, version, I mean, we're, so many of us are familiar with the idea that, um, you know, I know I have a mind because I introspect, you know, I have no idea whether you actually have a mind, um, but I see a similarity between, you know, my behavior and yours. And you can run the argument, you know, just as analogy like that, or you can just say the best, you know, the, 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 the way I explain my behavior is by reference to my mental states. If my hypothesis also covers you, um, then I've got, you know, that, that's a better hypothesis for some theoretical virtue. It, you know, it unifies me and you, the same hypothesis hypothesis works for me, works for you. So therefore I have excellent reason, you know, again, not conclusive, Right. right. But excellent prima facie for most of us, that's where we stop. Uh, excellent reason to think that you have a mind too. And so on for all people, right? Human beings uh, by default kind of enjoy this this situation. And, and you've probably, you know, gone through this problem in, in intro classes where you're, you're a freshman are like, what do you mean? We don't have mind. You know, how do you know? And it's, really, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite things to kind of pop on people. Right. But um, so if you alter that and you say, you know, you say something like, you know, instead of my perspective, you, you know, which is again, my perspective on you requires me to kind of see some similarity between you and me. And if I don't see that similarity, I can't run that argument, right? I have no reason to think that you have a mind if, you know, I mean, this is a problem for people who are severely disabled or something, right? Um, we don't know, right? So, um, uh, so the, you can run that argument in a similar sort of way by saying, you know, scientists have certain models of, uh, of, of my behavior. Let's just say me or us, you know, people. Um, and these models, uh, apply to us in terms of say our decision-making, right? Um, you know, my decision-making behavior, my behavior counts as decision-making behavior. You know, I satisfy the model, um, and you satisfy the model too. So, you know, the hypothesis that, you know, the model means the same thing is ascribing to you the same state, you know, internal states that it's ascribing to me when it says, you know, I'm exhibiting decision-make behavior, you're satisfying the same model. So, the, you know, in the inference to the best explanation version says, well, the same model applies to both of us, right? It's, and it unifies our behavior under the same model, mm-hmm. right? And that's, you know, that's really all you need, you know, and I think most people, uh, you know, who, if you accept that argument, uh, then you're already on the high road to literalism right. because, you know, all you need to do is to say instead of like other people, you know, also satisfy this model, you say, well, it's also, you know, it turns out to be monkeys as well. And it turns out to be uh, uh, flute flies too, right? And, you know, the same reasoning goes for for saying the model applies in the same way, should be interpreted in the same way for me and you, we interpret it in the same way for capuchins, right? And, right, unless you've got a really good reason to block the inference, and that's what's kind of missing, um, you, 
you should just say, well, yeah, the fruit flies, lo and behold, you know, they're making decisions too, right? It was unexpected, but are the same exact reason that I have for extending decision-making capacities to you. That's exactly what I'm doing with the fruit flies. Excellent. Um, and I guess that 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 way of running the argument also um, involves a kind of maybe subtle kind of burden shifting because now it looks as if somebody wants to accept the inference to the best explanation in the case of the fellow human being but then resist it um, in the fruit fly case and maybe not be so sure in the in the uh, uh, capuchin case. You know, one might just say, look, it looks like bigotry now. <laughs> of a certain well, I, kind. I don't, I don't think I don't think the the burden shifting is is subtle. At all. <laughs> you know, I really I really think that you know the, the that I mean that's that's part of the idea that we have you know when it comes to explaining the natural world you know Galileo you know way back when was like you know it's not the Bible. It's, you know, science, of course. And of course he gets into trouble and he has to reconcile it with, with scripture. Uh, But if you set that aspect aside, it start, you know, for hundreds of years, the semantic division of labor, as far as the natural world goes, uh, has been handed over largely, you know, to, to scientists. And now because it's not all, concepts. I mean, we have concepts of, you know, social concepts like marriage and, you know, parent and things like that, that have undergone conceptual shifts as well, you know, and people, some people still don't accept, you know, that marriage can cover something between, you know, two women or two men. Right. Right. But there, of course, the Defense of Marriage Act was all about the concept of marriage just is between a man and a woman. Right. right. There can be no conceptual change that's right. in when it comes to that concept. And of course, you know, that's what the Defense of Marriage Act was all about. It was defense of, of the, the, the fact that the, you know, the concept of marriage was fixed and could not change. And, you know, of course, most people disagree. Right. right. So, but that's not a scientific issue, right. right. That's a social relationship issue. But many of the, descriptions, the the terms that we use to describe the natural world, of course, you know, whether it's some kind of motion or whether it's some, you know, kind of creature uh, or whether it's something that they do, you know, psychologically or something, right? That's all, you know, part of now scientific psychology, scientific uh, neuro, neuroscience, mm-hmm. um, you know, cognitive science broadly, you know, that, that's that's what they're doing. Right. That's what they're doing. And so they've got, you know, good reason. Right. Right. Okay. So, um, so the, the sort of robust argument, uh, for literalism sort of has the flavor of a kind of, um, argument from elimination where you want to say, look, these, um, these non-literalist alternative ways of rendering or, or interpreting the psychological descriptions that seem to be necessary or seem to be a central part of our best scientific regimented uh, ways of understanding uh, uh, these, these subpersonal systems and non-personal creatures um, – uh, th- these don't do as well as literalism does in uh, along various kinds of metrics. Um, and so you, you discuss, you know, th- 
three different sort of um, kinds of alternative views to the literalist view. Um, we, the three are the nonsense view, the metaphor view, and the technical view. Um, in the interest of time, can we focus mainly just on the metaphor view? Because I take it that, um, and yeah. maybe I'm wrong, but I take it that that's probably the most natural kind of pushback, or that's the most common maybe among philosophers, perhaps, um, uh, anti-literalist or the anti-literalist piece of pushback, the idea that, oh, when they talk about fruit flies deciding or slime mold preferring, that's just metaphor, metaphorical right. decision making and metaphorical preference having. Um, right. Can you focus in on that one in particular? Sure, yeah. sure. Um, so let me, let me just first say um, these other views are, they're not really rivals um, oh, because they don't really take the relevant phenomena into account. In other words, you know, you know, if you're talking about a, a, an argument for elimination, you know, you've got a certain, a certain bunch of data and then you've got theory A, B, C, and D, and you argue, well, A has this horrible problem right. and B has right. this terrible problem, C has this problem, and guess what's left? Right. D. Right. Okay, right. so we're going to go with D. Um, and that's not the case, Okay. Uh, so this is where the context comes up for it plays an important role is that none of these views have been defended in print uh, with the caveat of the nonsense view, which is basically Bennett and Hacker in their foundations of neuroscience book, where they use a Wittgensteinian view to argue against the use of psychological predicates for brain areas. Right. So they're specific to brains, but they're not using they're talking about the way neuroscientists will quite often in sloppy ways talk about the brain in like science journalists, you know, science yeah. news or when they're talking to the public. Right. Or or writing popular science. Right. So even they don't quite get the right sorts of data that should be looked at the metaphor and the technical, you know, none of these views look at the broad range of actual serious scientific discourse. That is the relevant data. I see. Right. So they're not really alternatives. They're, they're more like potential alternatives. Mm -hmm. And so in fact, I'm, I kind of play devil's advocate with myself. Right. right? I say, well, you know, it is true. One of the initial pushbacks, you know, when you say, you know, we should take this talk of, you know, fruit fly decisions or something like that, we should take that literally. Oh, no, it's just metaphorical, right? Just like, you know, sellers, oh, the worm is, you know, it's just poetic right. to talk about the worm having a habit. Um, so that is a, you know, kind of a first pass response, but it doesn't, nobody has actually articulated a metaphorical view about all the relevant evidence. In fact, nobody's articulated a metaphor of you at all. They just kind of say, oh, well, it's, it's metaphorical, end of story. Um, so that is, one, that is a, a, one of the immediate responses. I don't even think it's the strongest response. I think some of the, the technical stuff that, you know, which I, I won't have time to discuss, mm -hmm. but that's more like, oh, it's just the intentional stance or you know, it's somehow less than fully fledged, something like that. But anyway, so the metaphor view, um, uh, in effect, it, it, you know, it, it would to, to make it, first of all, okay, the, the, the uses that I'm talking about, again, in serious scientific context, they're not coming 
with signs of metaphorical use, in other words, or, or somehow not literal use, not serious use. So, for example, they, they don't come in scare quotes mm -hmm. for the most part, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like the people who are talking about, you know, neurons anticipating this or having preferences or fruit flies making decisions are, are putting these terms in scare quotes, right? right? If they were, if, if most of these uses or many of them involve scare quotes, you know, that would be at least some prima facie evidence that, you know, maybe something's going on here and we shouldn't just assume that it's factive, right? Discourse. Um, but that's not at all what's happening, right? I mean, it, it, to, the, to the contrary, they're taking these terms very seriously in order to uh, motivate new research, right? So now people are looking at uh, doing various sorts of experiments showing that plants are able to sh appear to show signs of associative learning or of habituation, right? Um, so it motivates new sorts of research. Um, but the metaphor view, you know, eventually, okay, it's it's somehow poetic. Well, if it is metaphorical, there's no sign of it, first of right. all. Um, uh, but then you need to um, you need to provide an account of metaphor, right? And I look at the semantic accounts of metaphor that we got. In which it makes plausible that all these uses are, in fact, metaphorical, even though to all intents and purposes, and I mean all intents and purposes, they do not look metaphorical at all. Okay, so uh, that's not going to get me to literalism, but it does mean the metaphor view has to provide some sort of a reason. And, you know, I kind of go through the metaphorical, you know, the semantics of metaphor, um, and all the different ways that linguists have come up with to try to test when something is, when some particular context is a ling linguistic context is metaphorical and when it's not, none of these things, um, none of these things work. Um, but the, the basic problem is that is the metaphor view has to provide a non-question begging um, sort of criterion for when some aspect of the meaning, right, of a term that we use uh, is like, you know, sort of part of its core meaning. Mm. You know, you might say context, context, independent meaning, and what is just other things that we associate with it. Um, so to just to, to give a nice illustration of this, there's a there's a you know back and forth between George Lakoff and uh, Ray Jackendoff on whether dogs uh, have loyalty. You know whether the term loyalty or being loyal, right, is applicable to dogs. And Lakoff and and you know his collaborator, I think it's Turner, um, they argue that you know that's just meta, you know that's just metaphorical. Dogs don't really feel loyalty or exhibit loyalty. Um, and so they think they think of loyalty in a very, very thick kind of a way where it has all these moral overtones and all these sorts of things. And Jackendoff responds, he says, are you kidding me? <laughs> Dogs, of course they're loyal, right? And he, you know, he provides, a, you know, what it is loyal for something to, you know, be there when you want it or something, right. something along those lines. So he's completely down with the idea that, of course, dogs are really loyal. 
right? And so what, what's the difference there semantically? Well, semantically, Lakoff and, and Turner build into the concept of loyalty all the stuff that Jackendorf would say, that's just like baggage that we have as humans, right? right? There's nothing essential to, you know, there's nothing, not stuff part of the sort of context independent meaning of of loyalty that you have to have all that stuff. It's, it's similar to saying in order to rotate, you have to have arms and legs, right? right? Like a ballerina. Right. And now nobody thinks that's right. Right. That's, that's, you know, that's a very human centered way to think about rotating. Right. Right. But it's the same sort of a thing here where, you know, loyalty is just one example. What the metaphor view has to provide is a semantic criterion that says, you know, these things are essential to the core meaning. And you, and if you take them away, uh, you, you've, you've got something different, right? Um, and what I'm saying, of course, is that, well, actually, you know, the models that we've got for, you know, just to, again, to cite the decision-making example, they do give you a nice context-independent way to determine, you know, when something is making a decision of this simple type and when it's not. Just in the same way that the equations of angular momentum give you a context-independent reason to say this thing is rotating and this thing is not. Right. right. Can, I, can I just add, so ask um, about the metaphor view, whether there isn't um, some conceptual uh, difficulty that b b part of the criticism that you're just articulating now is sort of one way of manifesting it, and that seems as if if what one is if if what one is disputing or if what the yeah. argument is about is the sort of non metaphorical extension of a term <laughs> to just assert a metaphorical analysis or, or interpretation of certain uses of that term it's like well your concept of what the metaphorical deployments are, are going to be parasitic on your view of what the non metaphorical things are but that's what we're <laughs> that's that's what's in dispute here so it looks as if maybe the metaphorical views are kind of non-starters could that be right yeah i th i think that's right i mean so robin karsten has a nice you know she uses an example she's you know concerned with you know she gives a relevant semantics and uh um and she you know to to illustrate the idea of you know the sort of this context independent core you know even within relevant semantics um she uses the concept of of boiling right. which is really interesting because her clear con her her clear example of you know when you have a term like boiling that has various contextual um variations in its meaning right uh, which nobody disputes. You can you can use the term boiling to talk about water that isn't you know whatever it is two hundred and twelve degrees mm -hmm. you know above whatever it is. You can you know we use the term like that and we she calls that you know we're loose use right. things like that and these kind of shade into metaphor. Um, but she anchors <laughs> she anchors the concept of boiling with the scientific definition. Right. 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 And. You know, so the, so the metaphor, you even though that's the first, you know, gut reaction, um, there's a whole lot of work to do, and it's and I did not find any way. I mean, it's it's up to them; it's not up to sure. me um, to find a non-question begging criterion, right? Right for where you're going to draw the line 
and philosophers in particular. I mean, we have this kind of false consensus bias, you know, maybe just as a professional hazard of building into concepts, particularly psychological concepts, all kinds of things, making them very, very thick. And the thicker you make your concept, right, whether it's the concept of the self, right, you know, it's a nice thick concept. Mm -hmm. um, the thicker you make the concept, the more you risk leaving out a lot of humans. Well, is that? <laughs> Yeah. Um, not to mention, you know, all the other things, right. right? So you have to be very careful with how you draw the line between what is, you know, actually, you know, part of the concept um, and and what is, uh, you know, I, you can use the word baggage, but what is just, you know, maybe part of what it is for many humans to exercise that capacity, right. but not all, right? right? And then, you know, so there there's plenty of room to say, yeah, but, you know, humans do decisions in this particular way. And I would say, yeah, right. And there's humans see in this particular way and eagles see in this other particular way. And they're both like really seeing and there's no problem. And that's literalism. Right. Good. Um, so we're, we are running short on time, but I do want to make sure that we yeah. get to, um, to talk a little bit about, uh, the final chapter of the book. Um, we're skipping over some things, folks, but, uh, all the more reason to go out and buy the book. Um, so, um, <laughs> so, uh, I want to make sure we get to talk about the, the, the final chapter of the book, which is about the implications, um, of literalism for what I, I take, um, our reader, uh, readers, our, your readers and our listeners, um, will already have discerned that there are sort of questions about moral status and maybe broader kinds of moral questions um, uh, in the environment uh, once we adopt uh, a literalist um, interpretation of these um, uses of the psychological predicates. Um, um, can you tell us a little bit about what your view is about the sort of moral implications of literalism? Uh yeah, I mean, I'm sort of, this is part of what I'm, you know, one of the, one of the follow-ups that I'm, you know, working on now is, you know, how we should think about moral status, right. you know, given that moral status depends uh, directly or indirectly on, uh, you know, for the most part, possession of psychological properties, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes people put it in terms of persons, but then when you ask what a person is, it's you know it's it's various psychological capacities that persons are supposed to have, um, and so you know to be very brief about it, what I what I what I argue is that you know there will be initially a, a lot of resistance to the idea that you know should we uh, well, how should we adjudicate the moral status of these things that have different you know that you know may have these psychological capacities. Um, uh, and, but what, what I argue is that, uh, that might be a, a, a first pass response, but it's going to be an unstable response because science is continuing. We're going to find out more stuff, you know, 20 years ago, we thought birds were stupid, you know, bird brains. <laughs> now the general consensus is no, actually, you know, they're, they're pretty smart things. Um, so we're constantly finding things, and so it's entirely an open question what sorts of capacities we will find where. I mean, it could be that, you know, maybe at the end of the day, uh, you know, many of the, 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 the cases where we think such and such species has a capacity, they turn out not to have it. We'll find. 
you know, that's not a problem. Um, but all of this is kind of in flux, right? We don't know. And so the danger of saying, well, you have to have this capacity and see only humans have it. They're, that's obviously a kind of a God of the gaps right, problem. Right. Right. You know, then if next, you know, next week or next year or maybe, you know, 10 years from now, you find, oops, this other thing has it. Now what? Right. right? And if you keep moving the goalposts, then the grounds for moral status begin to look more and more and more arbitrary. And, and that's, that's bad news. That seems right. Um, so is that the next project? I usually end these interviews, as you know, uh, by asking the author um, uh, her next project. Is this what you're working on next? Uh, well, that's that's one of the things. Um, so yeah, I'm developing I'm developing that a bit more, looking at you know humanism versus various forms of um, bio egalitarianism. Um, I've also you know followed up some of the stuff that we that we didn't talk about on homuncular functionalism and the homuncular fallacy and how this affects the um, the, the the very general project. Uh, which is the next sort of big project of, um, you know, looking back again, which is where I kind of started uh, when I started thinking about these things, um, the theoretical integration of, of psychology and neuroscience, I see. which is a big topic. And a lot of people are working on that, you know, these days. So I kind of want to get back um, more directly to that. But of course, from the perspective that I have about, you know, psychology changing in these interesting ways. Um, and, you know, then there's other stuff, you know, in science communication and epistemology of journalism that has, that has nothing to do with this. Well, um, uh, I, I keep track of what you do. <laughs> so um, all that sounds fabulous. Um, for now, though, I want to thank you for having taken the time to talk to me about your new book. Well, I appreciate it, and I'm I'm very happy that I don't have to do anything else. I can just like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, listeners, for uh, for joining us uh, today for our discussion of Carrie Figder's new book, which is titled "Pieces of Mind: The Proper Domain of Psychological Predicates," which is published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>